0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor David Frederick about a fascinating book and a timely one called Jewish Muslims, How Christians Imagine Islam as the Enemy, which was published by California University Press in January 2023. David, uh, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for
1: having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, Before we start uh, talking about the book, could you please briefly introduce yourself and talk about your field of expertise and, more importantly, why you decided to write this book and what the title of the book refers to, Jewish Muslim? It seems like there's a bit, there's there's, there's this this there.
1: (laughs) Muslims are not Jews. In fact, that is the first sentence of the book. Jewish Muslims do not exist. They have never existed. Um... What I'm studying or describing in this book are the ways in which Christians talked about people who don't exist in the real world. They invented Jewish Muslims, and they did so for a reason, and what I wanted to understand is why Christians would imagine Muslims as Jews, even when they know that Muslims aren't Jews. Uh, And this work grew out of research that I began already as a graduate student uh, in New York, uh, including uh, on 9-11. And that event certainly shaped my interests and my understandings of how Jews, Christians, and Muslims have understood each other over time. Uh, This book focuses specifically on how Christians used their pre-existing ideas about Jews to think about muslims and why they found value in doing so even though no muslims are not jewish
0: in a way you use it as a metaphor and that's uh, what you what you write in the book so Ju- judaism as a metaphor let's say is that right
1: the language is metaphorical in the same way that when you say my love is a rose mm-hmm. you don't literally mean that the person you love is a plant But you use that metaphorical language to say something about that person, about your relationship. The allegation Muslims are Jews is similarly metaphorical. Mm. I wouldn't say that Judaism is a metaphor, but the Judaism that these Christians are talking about is not what real Jews actually believe or practice the muslims that they're talking about are not muslims that muslims themselves would recognize the islam is not Mm. real islam as muslims would define it both are terms that christians are inventing defining using for their own purposes to construct their own understanding of reality and like all good metaphors Mm. there is value communicated even though, and precisely because, it's not literally true. My love isn't a rose, but I can tell you something about the person I love through that metaphor. Muslims are not Jews, but Christian polemicists used that metaphorical language mm-hmm. to communicate something to their audiences. And I wanted mm-hmm. to understand what that is and why they found that metaphor to be useful. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, let's broadly talk about how Muslims were imagined in biblical texts or in Christian worldview. You, you used some examples. For example, there were associations of uh, the Dome of Rock with Jewish temple. So I'm kind of keen to know, generally speaking, how they were imagined in biblical texts and in the Christian worldview. And what were the source of these Christian ideas about Muslim? How did, how, how did they became popular, especially um, before the rise of Islam uh, in the 7th century?
1: That's the irony of this all. Christian ideas about Muslims are grounded in the Bible. The thing is that the Bible predates Islam, Mm -hmm. which means that Christian ideas about Muslims predate the rise of Islam. When Christians encountered Muslims beginning in the seventh century, they didn't say, oh, wow, this is a new group of people. They have a new set of ideas. Let me take a moment to understand who they are and what they believe so that I can engage with them as real people. They instead turned to the Bible because Christians understood the Bible to be the source of truth and authority. And they said, okay, who are these people and how do they fit within my pre-existing scheme of understanding humanity? Already before the rise of Islam, Christians divided the world that wasn't themselves into three groups. There are pagans, people who don't believe in God. There are heretics who believe in God. They think they're Christians, but they've got it wrong. And then there are Jews who sort of believe in God, but not quite the right way, because after all, they reject Jesus. They sort of believe in the Bible, but not really because they only accept the Old Testament and not the New Testament unlike pagans who accept neither, or heretics who accept both but read it wrong. Within that framework, Christians sometimes found it useful to define Muslims as pagans. They don't accept God, they don't accept the Bible, and they get branded as idolaters and all sorts of other things. Again, nothing to do with real Muslim beliefs. Sometimes, Christians portrayed Muslims as heretics. They're really Christians gone astray. At other times, Christians found it useful to portray Muslims as Jews. And one example of where they found that useful was when talking about the Dome of the Rock. Mm. Because the Dome of the Rock stands on the space of the temple described in biblical literature, the temple that was central to Jewish identity, the very temple at which Jesus himself appeared in very important scenes in his life. And by understanding the Dome of the Rock as the latest version of the biblical temple, Christians could motivate fellow Christians to engage in certain kinds of activities. For example, if you can define the Dome of the Rock as the temple of the Lord, it is God's temple, then we Christians living in Western Europe at the time of the Crusades should march across to the Eastern Mediterranean to reclaim this building that is rightfully God's, that is rightfully ours. In that context, they actually associate Muslims with pagans, the folks who conquered or um, inappropriately seized the Jewish temple from the Jews in biblical times, especially in the period of the Maccabees. If the Muslims are the equivalent of the Greeks who stormed the temple, Then the Crusaders are the equivalent of the Jews and the Maccabees who defended the temple, who secured God's blessing for themselves by standing up for their faith. And so in that context, rhetoric about Muslims can motivate a certain kind of Christian behavior. In other contexts, including related to the Dome of the Rock, Christians found it useful to brand Muslims as Jews because Christians had always used rhetoric about Jews to define the wrong way of being a Christian. Don't do that. That's Jewish. Do this instead. Don't be like those Muslims. They're Jewish. Believe this instead.
0: So, so, so in a way, again, the Muslim will portray it as a foil for what that proper Christian should be.
1: Exactly. And all of this rhetoric is designed to construct Muslims as a foil. Mm. The audience is always fellow Christians. And the objective is always to foster the right kind of Christianity among those Christians. And of course, there are plenty of different Christians. They've got different ideas about what proper Christianity should be. They're often arguing against each other, but already within the New Testament, Christians began to use Jews as negative foils for the construction of Christian identity. And many found value in slotting Muslims into that same role because they thought that their audiences would be better persuaded by using a Muslim foil than using a Jewish foil.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, another part of the book that I really enjoyed was when you talked about the Crusades, because Crusades is generally portrayed as this um, uh, clash between the Christians and the Muslims. But you talk about the rhetoric and the rhetoric, how that rhetoric of Crusades fostered violence against both Muslims and also Jews. Can you talk about that part of the book, please?
1: Sure. So the Crusades were first and foremost an effort by European Christians to attack Muslims and seize um, what became known as the Holy Land from Muslims. The allegation was that Muslims improperly controlled the land that was Jesus's um, and that Christians should um, restore it to its proper Christian glory. Nobody is sure exactly what Pope Urban II said that proved so inspirational that thousands of Christians dropped everything, picked up arms, and marched across a continent to a place they had never been to or even imagined going to. We do know, however, that some of the knights and um, rabble-rousers and the like who were inspired to go on crusade, saw reason to kill Jews along the way. And sources from that period suggest that the logic ran something like this. Here we are marching all the way across to foreign lands to avenge Christ against those who have conquered Christ's burial place, Christ's, um, the site of Christ's resurrection, But right in our midst, we have the very Jews who crucified him. Why should we attack Muslims and not attack Jews? Let's kill both. And already here in Europe, we will begin the process of avenging Christ's dishonor. Um, There were plenty of people who tried to make a logical distinction no, we attack Muslims because Muslims aren't subservient to Christian authorities. We don't attack Jews because Jews are willing to be subservient. And there were plenty of knights who didn't make that distinction or who didn't find that distinction to be valuable or who, for one reason or another, um, felt inspired or motivated to kill Jews and route to killing Muslims. Uh, another
0: Part of the book, you in the book you come up, you you, you talk about a lot of uh, historical figures that I'd never heard of, and I'm kind of curious to know how you found those sources. I'm uh, going also ask you about some of them. For example, you talk about how how uh, how were Jews how Jews and Muslims were treated from a legal perspective based on the existing legal literature, and you have the example of I'm um, I hope I'm not mispronouncing the name uh, Aldradis Du Ponte um so can you talk about that their treatment from a legal perspective and the work of Aldrados de Ponte? but please correct me if i'm mispronouncing the name
1: sure so let me back up a minute i began my um research uh as a graduate student focusing specifically on legal literature um i looked at jewish christian and islamic laws regarding one another um particularly interested in rules about food this project grew out of that and in order to find a wider range of material i began reading everything i could find about christian rhetoric on muslims and what i discovered is that the existing literature has plenty of references to associations between muslims and jews But nobody had made that the central focus of their research. So I cast a really broad net, found everything that I could, looked at the primary sources. If I wasn't convinced I could make a compelling case that really this is rhetoric that depicts Muslims as Jews, I left it on the cutting room floor. Um, And I focused my arguments specifically on those sources that make direct associations between Muslims, and Jews. Because I began in the area of legal literature, I'd been familiar with Aldoades de Ponte's work for quite some time, uh, simply because uh, somebody had chosen to publish a number of years back his legal writings about Jews and Muslims. Oldratus was a a legal advisor in the papal court in Avignon, southern France. This was the period when the papacy had relocated out of Rome. Um, And Oldratus wrote several hundred legal briefs. It's clear that he wrote them for different audiences. And as any good lawyer, he can argue multiple sides of the same case. Of those briefs, a number of them relate to Jews or Muslims, or in four cases, both Jews and Muslims. And those are the texts that I study. He makes the arguments that Christian rulers should dispossess Jews and Muslims of their lands, should expel Jews and Muslims from their territories, And what interested me was the way in which he grounds these arguments, because you can't find biblical texts that talk about Muslims. So what does he do? He finds biblical texts that talk about Jews. He finds other legal sources that talk about Jews, and he then applies them to Muslims, sometimes just by fiat. He assumes that Jews and Muslims are legally equivalent. And so if he can make the argument based on texts about Jews, all the more so it must apply to Muslims. The other thing that Eldradus does, however, is draw specifically on biblical rhetoric about Hagar. Hagar was the slave of Sarah, Sarah being the wife of Abraham. And in the biblical account, Sarah asked Abraham to have sex with Hagar for the purpose of bearing a child because Sarah was barren, and the child born from that relationship is Ishmael. Within the book of Genesis, where this story appears, Abraham then, at Sarah's urging, kicks Hagar and Ishmael out of the household. denies the inheritance to Ishmael in favor of his son Isaac, born to Sarah. And you have a genealogical account that describes the emergence of different ethnic groups. Uh, The Ishmaelites come to be associated with the Arabs. The thing is, is that in the New Testament, Paul uses that same story to make a somewhat different point. And he says the entire thing is an allegory describing two different groups that believe in Jesus. The right believers, namely Paul's community, are the heirs of Sarah. And the wrong community are the heirs of Hagar. And what should we, the right followers of Jesus, do? We should kick the wrong followers out of our communities because we are the true heirs of Abraham's promise. Well, fast forward another 100 years or so, and Christians come to associate that wrong group with the Jews. The Jews become the heirs of Hagar, symbolically, even though literally they might claim descent from Isaac and therefore from Sarah. Aldrados, centuries later, uses that line of reasoning to say that God himself commands Abraham to expel Hagar and her son, and that that command applies to us, we Christians should expel Jews and Muslims, both of whom are the heirs of Hagar, literally and spiritually, from our lands. And so he's using biblical texts as interpreted through the lens of anti-Judaism as then applied to Muslims who are Jewish to make a case for political action in Western Europe particularly Spain France to some degree he's speaking about um England as well during this period of the 14th century
0: uh, and and that story of uh, Sarah and Hager that he just mentioned I'm very much familiar with the... Because what was a school kid that that story was in our book? We had to do a couple of courses on religion, and uh, yeah, I guess that story kind of rang familiar with me. Uh, how about Timothy the First, the patriarch of the Church of the East, and how how who was he, and how did he portray Muslims as the new Jews?
1: Great, Timothy is somebody I had never heard of before embarking on this research project. Aldaratus is somebody nobody would have heard of if they hadn't been studying law. Um, But to clarify, when I began my study of Christian law, I focused primarily on the Latin material of the Western Church, what we now associate with the Roman Catholic Church. Timothy I was patriarch of the Church of the East. That was a particular form of Christianity that became very popular in Iraq. Um, It broke away from um, what became the uh, Western traditions in the third, fourth, fifth, sorry, fourth, fifth, maybe even beginning of sixth centuries. Timothy was um, the leader of the Church of the East during the 700s, if I'm getting my memory correct, maybe even early 800s. And he was responsible for helping his followers understand how and why they should continue to be Christians in a now Muslim-dominated society, not a Muslim-majority society yet. The vast majority of people who lived in Iraq during this period, early 800s, were Christians or Zoroastrians. But Muslims were in charge and Islamic ideas were becoming increasingly familiar, especially among Christian elites, the kind of people that Timothy would have associated with. Timothy was known not only as a um, religious figure and law codifier, uh, but also as a philosopher. Um, He was part of the movement that translated Greek philosophical traditions through the Christian language of Syriac into the cognate language of Arabic. Um, And he reports that he engaged in philosophical disputations, both with the caliph, al-Mahdi, and also with um, an unnamed Muslim philosopher in the caliph's court, All of this is happening um, between the period of 1785 and the early, sorry, 785 and the early 800s. One of the things that I find interesting about Timothy's rhetoric is that he introduces his accounts of a philosophical debate with a Muslim by branding the Muslims of his day as the new Jews. Just as the Jews of Jesus' time refused to accept the significance of Christ, refused to accept that he was resurrected, refused to accept that he is in fact God, and, using biblical language, get tripped up over the significance of the cross and the crucifixion, so too these new Jews today refuse to accept that Jesus Christ is God, refuse to accept the crucifixion and resurrection, get tripped up over the same things, that the Muslims that we're confronting today, who he never calls Muslims, he refers to them initially as the new Jews. And the moment you call somebody a new Jew, you've already branded them as having the wrong ideas. Timothy was not the first person to use that phrase, new Jew. It was used to describe Christian heretics for uh, quite a long period before he reapplies it to Muslims. Always in a pejorative, denigrating sense, you don't want to believe like them. They're Jewish. Believe this way instead. Timothy is doing exactly that, but now his goal isn't to persuade Christians to believe this form of Christianity rather than that form of Christianity, the goal is to reinforce their Christian convictions in um, an environment where Muslims are increasingly powerful, uh, and Islam might be perceived as a compelling alternative. Um, a- another part
0: of the book that I was really interest- was interested in was uh, Theodore, the person talked about Theodore Bar uh, Barconi, and he had this Fictional dialogue with a Muslim student. Uh, can, can you talk about him and tell us who he was and what is what is the significance of that uh, fictional dialogue, that text you discuss in the book?
1: Theodore Barconi uh, lived in Timothy's Church of the East. They probably knew each other, um, but Theodore was a school teacher rather than a um, organizational leader. He is best known for writing what became a very popular textbook for helping students within the Church of the East understand how to interpret the Bible. And biblical interpretation was always key to Christian formation because Christians had to help one another understand How to prove their convictions on the basis of biblical texts, many of which, to be perfectly honest, predate the particular sets of beliefs that these Christians are trying to promote. And so, what Theodore does, he publishes a version of this, and then he goes back and adds an extra chapter, because evidently the original version wasn't good enough. And that extra chapter takes the form of a dialogue between a Christian teacher and a student who is defined as, well, you can translate it as pagan, you can translate it as unbeliever. Um, It's not quite clear, but the student is identified as somebody who believes in Muhammad, and somebody who quotes the Quran and quotes Quranic refutations of Christianity. So it's pretty clear that Theodore's student is being depicted as a Muslim, even though, of course, Theodore is writing for Christian students. And so these students are in an interesting bind. On the one hand, they see themselves as students. They are similar to the Muslim student in that they're listening to the teacher and trying to learn from the teacher. On the other hand, They don't want to associate themselves with Muslims. They're Christians, they're good students, unlike that Muslim who's being portrayed as a bad student. And so they are inspired through the literary genre to accept not only the teachings that the Muslim student, the fictional student accepts, but also to accept the teachings that this fictional Muslim student rejects. And for much of the dialogue, the Muslim student accepts everything that the teacher says. Yes, absolutely, the Church of the East has the proper way of understanding the Bible as opposed to those other rival Christian groups. But the student keeps on saying, I'm really still stuck on understanding the significance of Jesus. Move on to another section. Same thing, but I still understand this Jesus thing. Finally, we get to the climax. And the teacher challenges the student, based on everything I've told you, what's the answer to your question about Jesus? And the student stumbles. He can't come up with the right answer. The right answer, according to the Christian teacher, is that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God, and the student refuses to accept it. And in that moment, the teacher brands the student as a Jew. Just like the Jews cannot accept that Jesus is God, so too you can't accept Jesus as God, even though I've got all the evidence to support it. And he proceeds to provide all the biblical evidence to support the claim that Jesus is God, and the student still can't accept it. And in the final lines of the chapter, the teacher turns to the audience and says, at the end of the day, what matters isn't how you read the Bible, What matters is, do you believe that Jesus is God? That's a pretty powerful lesson for Christian students of the time. I can imagine why somebody would write a chapter like that, and I can understand why they would find it useful in that context to brand Muslims as Jews. Christians had been criticizing Jews and Jew-like Christians for centuries over how to properly understand the significance of Jesus, how to properly understand the significance of the Bible, Muslims are nothing new. They're part of the same old pattern. We can slot them into the biblical paradigms. We can slot them into the classic Christian ways of teaching fellow Christians how to be better Christians. And so Theodore is using that rhetoric about Muslims as being Jewish to make that case. And living in Iraq, he must know that Muslims and Jews are completely different people. They have completely different beliefs, practices, powers. They live in different communities. Theodore and his audience alike know that Muslims aren't Jews. But his point is that at the end of the day, Anybody who doesn't accept the proper beliefs in Jesus is a Jew or its equivalent.
0: Um another part of the book that I really like was a text that you introduced, which even introduced um the Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad as as a Jew and his mother as a mentor. Um and I'm also curious to know more about that text and also how these texts kind of reinforced the Christian ideas of they were used to reinforce the Christian's ideas of chastity and monogamy.
1: So we're going to shift gears here from the eastern part of Christian society to the western part, which is to say from places where Christians encountered Muslims on a regular basis, knew something about what Muslims actually believe, knew stories about Muhammad, to the European context where they didn't. And I mean, Europe outside of Spain. In Northern Europe, Christians told all sorts of stories about Muhammad that are not grounded in any accurate information. And the, I guess I can call it, um, playground slur, your mother X is not new to my experience growing up on the playground, um, already in the middle ages when people wanted to um, denigrate their targets, they would often make allegations about their mothers. One set of stories that emerged in Christian Europe was the allegation that Muhammad's mother was a Jew. Christians are trying to understand how is it that Islam has features that are similar to Judaism? And there were a variety of stories that were told, including within the Eastern traditions, about Jews who influenced Muhammad, and that somehow Muhammad was exposed to Jewish teachings, integrated them into the Quran, because of course Christians believe that Muhammad himself composed the Quran, uh, or in fact will argue that Jews composed the Quran and ascribed it to God, but really it was Jewish text. Um, stories about Muhammad's Jewish mother embed the Jewishness in Muhammad himself. He was a Jew. Some of the same stories, or variants of the same stories, identify Muhammad's mentor as a Jew. He was taught by a Jew from his youth, and he's drawing on all of these ideas to create um, a monstrous alternative to Judaism, or rather a monstrous version of Judaism that is an alternative to Christianity that's more appealing in part because, wow, it allows multiple wives. This notion that European Christians promoted that the only reason anybody would embrace Islam is in order to just have a lot more sex um, became a prominent feature in a variety of Christian tales about Muslims and Christian tales about Muhammad. And in some of these stories, it's clear that what the authors are actually trying to do is not simply inspire their audience to look down upon Muslims or to make fun of Muhammad, but rather to inspire them to embrace Christian normative values about chastity and monogamy. Don't be like those Muslims. Stick with your married partner or perhaps don't get married at all. Why? Because these Muslims are Jewish. And even Muhammad himself, Right, his mother was a Jew, his mentor was a Jew, One text goes so far as to allege that Muhammad was the incestuous, adulterous offspring of two Jewish siblings, right? They're layering every possible slur they can come up with on a figure that um, they found deeply threatening, to be perfectly honest. Uh, And identifying that figure as Jewish, identifying key members of Muhammad's circle as Jews serves to increase the power of that negative rhetoric for audiences that had long been trained to disdain Jews.
0: Uh, One thing I'm curious to know, given that Jews were persecuted for centuries in Europe, they were expelled from parts of Europe, so all these associations of Muslims as Jews or Muslims being Christ killer again, the same thing, the same accusation that was also levied against the Jews. Uh, Were were Muslims also kind of persecuted or expelled from, were they under the same kind of, uh, if you know what I mean, kind of persecution that Jews went through during that time?
1: Yes, they were, with an important caveat. So Muslims were present in Europe primarily in Spain, um, Mm. but also in parts of Italy, briefly in other uh, areas along the uh, Northern Mediterranean. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492, the very same year, not coincidentally, that the Christian monarchs um, finished their conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. There had been a holdout Muslim community based in Granada, It capitulated in 1492, um, and it did so on condition that Muslims always be allowed to live in the Iberian Peninsula as Muslims, and they would never be required to convert. Well, 10 years later, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella required all Muslims in their territory, Spain, to convert or leave. Mm. A significant number of those Muslims did convert to Christianity. They became known as Moriscos. The trouble was that... Well, from a Christian perspective, the trouble was that these Moriscos were not all devout Christians, um, often continued to engage in, uh, if not Islamic religious practices, then cultural practices that were still not the same as the dominant Christian society. Um, There were any number of attempts on the part of Christians to uh, force Moriscos to become good Christians. And as the 16th century went on, an increasing number of influential Christian polemicists tried to make the case for expelling the Moriscos from Spain. On the grounds that Moriscos are Muslims, some of them added the step, Muslims are Jewish. And after all, you should expel the Moriscos the same way that Ferdinand and Isabel in 1492 expelled the Jews. That is exactly what uh, King Philip IV, if I'm not mistaken, uh, did to the Moriscos in the early 1700s. One can say that he expelled Muslims. One can say that he expelled Christians. Moriscos um, self-identified at least publicly as christians but a lot of the polemic that was designed to encourage the previously unheard of notion that christians should expel fellow christians and kick them out into non-christian lands was to allege that these moriscos were not in fact christian some went so far as to say they are in fact jews and rhetoric associating moriscos with christ killers helped in that process. Rhetoric about Jews as Christ killers often had really harmful impacts on local Jewish communities. That kind of rhetoric either that Muslims sorry that Jews killed Christ in biblical times or that Jews are reenacting the killing of Christ by killing innocent Christian children or by Tormenting um, the Eucharistic host, which according to Christian theology becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. Stories about Jews doing harmful, destructive things to the host or Christians were used to spark riots against Jews, mass arrests and murder of Jews, um, the arrest and conviction and execution of Jews. The folks who were trying to expel the Moriscos didn't want to kill Moriscos. They wanted to kick them out. And they modulated their rhetoric in ways that would persuade the king and his counselors to take political action against the Moriscos without necessarily rabble-rousing to get the populace to gang up and riot against moriscos. In fact, the expulsion of moriscos was highly unpopular among Christians who had morisco neighbors. It was entirely done uh, at the elite level. And those who engaged in rhetoric knew their audience and tailored their rhetoric accordingly to achieve their purposes, which gets me to one of the broader findings of the book. Those who are using rhetoric about Jews to attack Muslims are doing so for very targeted reasons. They have goals, and they're being very strategic about how to achieve them. They don't always achieve their goals. In this case, they did. The Moriscos were expelled. But they're gonna draw on whatever rhetoric they think is going to be most useful to achieve that goal. And rhetoric, even alleging that Muslims killed Christ, notwithstanding the fact that Muslims didn't exist at the time of Jesus, can serve to advance um christian objectives and when it does
0: they use it. um did you, you talk about a shift in this anti-jewish polemic in the 13th century um to portray Jews as as anti-god and how did it align uh, align them with the Muslims in this case and how did that shift come about
1: so there's a much broader shift that occurs many classic Christian texts um rooted primarily in Augustine, who was um, one of the most influential Western Christian thinkers um, of the uh, early 400s. Augustine insisted that Jews have an important place within Christian society, that Jews are the unwitting witnesses to Christian truth claims about Jesus, and we need them in our midst to attest to the authenticity of the very biblical text that they fail to understand. Over the course of the Middle Ages, particularly during the um, 1200s, Christians begin to challenge that understanding of Jews. And they begin to allege that Jews don't simply misunderstand the Bible. They don't misunderstand God. They actively reject God that the Jews who arranged for Christ to be crucified knew that Christ was God and wanted to get rid of him for that very reason. They were anti-Christian and not merely misguided witless witnesses. Once you begin to define Jews as those who are enemies of God, given the long history of associating Muslims with Jews, Muslims become defined as enemies of God as well. It doesn't take defining Muslims as Jews to make them enemies of God. Muslims can be pagans and enemies of God too. That exists in an earlier strain of literature, including a lot of crusade literature. But when you combine Muslims as pagans who hate God, Jews who hate God, you end up with a notion of everybody who is not Christian becomes an enemy of Christ. You have depictions of biblical anti-heroes, biblical figures like Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor who ordered Christ crucified, Pharaoh in ancient Egypt of Moses' time. All of these figures become identified as worshipers of Muhammad, who is the false god worshiped by the Jews, as well as the Muslims, as well as apparently by the Romans and the ancient Egyptians, because the entire world is divided between those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ who come to be associated with Muhammad. This is a very dangerous set of rhetoric um, that helps us to understand a lot of contemporary rhetoric that alleges that Muslims don't really believe in God The notion that Muslims don't really believe in God goes way back, and rhetoric about Muslims and Jews as believers in the Antichrist, or in Muhammad as Antichrist, or in Muhammad as the false god, play important roles in building up this notion of a binary antithetical distinction between Christians and Muslims rooted in the Bible itself.
0: And, and how about um, uh, Luther? What was his role in sort of condemning Judaism and also Islam?
1: So Luther takes that binary system one step further. He teaches that the only proper way to be a Christian is, in modern terms, to be a Protestant, not a Catholic, and he uses rhetoric about Jews to brand Catholics as Jewish. He uses rhetoric about Muslims to brand Catholics as Muslims, sometimes then using them through the Muslims to brand them as Jewish. But Luther then creates a new innovation, which is to say that he grounds negative rhetoric about Islam in the Bible itself parallel to grounding it in negative rhetoric about Jews found within the Bible. And so Luther is significant for two reasons. One is he lumps Catholics in with Jews and Muslims as the enemies of Christ. He'll even lump rival Protestants, those who don't follow what we would now call Lutheranism, Um, in that group of folks who do not truly worship God. They don't truly have faith in Christ. They are, in fact, worshipers of the devil. Um, And it's really an us versus them in this world. That's piece one. Piece two is Luther is able to ground that us versus them rhetoric in the Bible itself such that biblical authors are directly condemning Islam, even though Luther knows that Islam is post-biblical. Because, according to Luther, Islam does not accept faith in Christ, it must therefore be a religion of violence, a religion of lies, a religion of misogyny, a religion that undermines everything that we hold valuable about Christian society. How do we know this? The Bible says so. And because the Bible says so, we must resist the Muslims. We must resist the Jews. We must resist the Pope and his Catholics, because that's what it means to be a good evangelical Christian. Luther's term evangelical refers to everybody we would today call Protestants. Many of those who self-identify as evangelicals today are not Lutherans, but they are absolutely following in Luther's way of understanding Christianity as being grounded in faith alone, in God's grace alone, in scripture alone. And many of them have adopted that same binary understanding that puts Muslims beyond the pale as the antithesis of proper Christian values and is a dangerous threat to Christian society. Luther was already making that case. He was making that case in the context of Ottoman military advances into the heart of Europe. Um, But a lot of that rhetoric continues to find audiences in the present day as well.
0: Um, And as a last question, uh, so there has been a lot of anti-Semitism in the past. And um, in the book, you also make the case that uh, sort of maybe Islamophobia is a new term that we use these days, but there has been this prejudice against Muslims as well. Do you see, and and I think after... uh, off the air, before we recording this interview, I did mention that given the current crisis in the Middle East, uh, there has been a rise of anti-Semitism and also Islamophobia around the world. Do you see any parallels between the way Muslim and Jews are portrayed these days uh, compared to the past?
1: That is a very good question and a complicated question. I'm going to give a long mm. answer to it. Um, first of all, I want to emphasize that the book focuses less on anti-Semitism than what I call anti-Judaism. And the difference is that anti-Semitism blames Jews as Jews for things that are wrong. The Jews are intrinsically, inherently inferior. They're dangerous. They're a threat. We need to combat Jews in some way. The notion that Muslims are Jewish is not anti-Semitic in that sense, because by definition, Muslims aren't Jews. Rather, what Christians are doing is engaging in a rhetoric of anti-Judaism. Anti-Judaism focuses not on what Jews are, allegedly, but rather on what certain people do or think. To read the Bible this way is Jewish to understand Jesus in this way is Jewish. Don't be a Jew, believe this instead. And the power of the rhetoric of anti-Judaism is that it can inspire Christian audiences to act in a different way, to themselves believe and behave differently because the alternative is for those Christians to become Jewish themselves. Anti-Semitism is racist. It assumes that Jews are inherently this, and that we are inherently something else. Anti-Judaism is uh, a much better form of moral encouragement because it's got that stick attached to it of you could become a Jew if you don't behave properly. And Muslims become a banner example of people who fell into Judaism, don't be like Muslims, they've become Jews. Islamophobia also has those kind of dual dimensions. There are dimensions of Islamophobia that are absolutely racist. Muslims are inherently inferior for this and this reason. And there are also forms of Islamophobia that use negative rhetoric about Islam to inspire certain kinds of behavior. That's what Luther was trying to do. Don't be a Muslim. Follow this understanding of Christianity instead some of the rhetoric that we're seeing playing out today is using negative rhetoric about Jews and Muslims to inspire audiences to be better Christians, to be better Americans, right? Don't be Jewish, don't be Muslim, do this instead. Vote for this candidate, support this kind of political policy. we can see today both forms, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, anti-Muslimism and anti-Islam, if you want to use two different terms for Islamophobia as opposed to two different terms for Judaophobia, um, all of these are in play, which is to say that the same patterns of thinking that we saw in pre-modern times continue to animate Rhetoric today continue to inspire people to act in really dangerous ways today. And there's an important difference. In part because of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which many people perceive as a conflict between Jews and Muslims, there's much less reason for people engaged in rhetoric to claim that Muslims are Jews. Muslims and Jews have moved in somewhat different ways in Christian thought and its Western successors. Sometimes Muslims and Jews are still being portrayed as allies to one another. Often they're being portrayed as rivals and enemies to one another. Both are increasingly subject to discriminatory rhetoric, to violence, to persecution in one form or another. My hope is that by understanding the ways in which this rhetoric has functioned in the past, we can better understand and confront what's happening now. Not because the same thing is happening, but because some of the same underlying dynamics continue to be relevant.
0: And that was a very, very good response. And I think your book... uh i myself when i read the book i i I learned a lot and i could kind of see the palace with what's happening these days you know both in the middle east and also in uh, america and europe as well uh, given the way the muslims and also the jews are portrayed, and how you described uh, using both these tropes look jews or muslims don't be like them but be a good american or be a good christian i i myself was born in a muslim family We've always been a non-practicing family, so I think I was just born in Iran. And when I moved to New Zealand to do my PhD, whenever I was in a gathering or an event, I and I did a PhD in English literature, so I introduced myself where I came from. And the first question I was asked, and I guess the reason I was asked that question was that I had a glass of wine. Was that okay, Are you Muslim? And I, because I had never been a practicing Muslim, I always said no. But the question kept coming at every event, and I knew where what the source of that question was. So. I started introducing myself, I didn't want to reinforce the stereotypes in the mind because there were lots of Muslims, even practicing Muslims, who were kind of liberals like me. And I said, I think two months later, I I would say I'm a cultural Muslim, but then I kind of started to problematize that term. And whenever I get that question out, I just say, yeah, I'm a a Muslim, I'm a practicing Muslim. And I guess I'm just deliberately doing that to further confuse them because I know that the questions are based on some stereotypes. Uh, david thank you very very much for taking the time to talk with us about your wonderful book it's a fascinating book that i can't um recommend strongly enough to to people who are interested in uh this topic in history and also how uh how the whole uh you know discourse about the muslim and jews are uh is, is being described but i guess your book uh sheds a lot of light on these topics as well thank you so much for your time
1: thank you for making the time as well i'm so glad you enjoyed the book